Welcome to the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast, a weekly podcast for writers. Grab a cup of coffee, perhaps some paper and pen, and enjoy an interview with an author, a chat with a writing tool creator, perhaps a conversation with an editor or other publishing expert, as well as Kat's thoughts on writing and her own creative journey. You'll laugh, you'll cry, well, hopefully not actually cry, but you will probably learn something. And I hope you'll be inspired to write because as I always say, you have a story, you should write it down. This is Pencils and Lipstick. Hello, writer, and welcome to episode 130 of the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. This is Kat Caldwell. I'm your hostess today. And later on in the second part of the show, we will be talking to Andy Cumbo Floyd. She is a nonfiction writer and a fiction writer. She has experience in editing and she runs a sort of creative business coaching group. Business is definitely part of selling books about being a writer. And it's sort of Andy's mission to make sure that we understand that as writers and to help those who are ready to really get their business, their creative business organized and flowing. So she is in the interview section of the show. Before we get into that, if you guys would like and subscribe the podcast, if you would share it with others, any episode that you enjoy, share it out, tweet it out. Um, If you want to contact me at all because of the show or about the show, you can get me on Twitter at pencils and lipstick all spelled out. I'm also on Instagram, the podcast one is at pencils and lipstick as well, all spelled out. I'm also on there as catcaldwell.author. You can pretty much get me on both of those. Facebook, I'm on, don't use as much, but you can also find me at catcaldwell.com or you can head over to the podcast website, pencilsandlipstick.com. And over there at pencilsandlipstick.com, you can find the transcripts of almost every show for the last I want to say 20 shows, and that's probably where it will stay. <laughs> I, I probably won't go back in the archives. But now, from now on, from, you know, 100 shows on, we are doing transcripts and getting them up there. I have a wonderful helper getting the blogs out there, getting all that work done. Um, you can also listen to it on the website um, and find out a little bit of, more about me and about the creative writing community. So, and you can find you know, your way over to catcaldwell.com if you want to find my writing, um, the group that I have and my books as well. So if you guys wanted to support the show other than just sharing it with your friends, which is awesome already, if you wanted to share it monetarily, you can go to patreon.com forward slash pencils underscore lipstick. Any monetary gift helps with the creation of the show. If you are a writer and you become a patron, I will talk about your book on the show. If you have any suggestions on who you would like to be on the show, you can tweet me at Pencils and Lipstick. I am on there one couple times a week, so I should see it. I'm excited about today's interview. I think you're going to be very interested in what Andy says. She's a very upbeat woman. She's fun to talk to, fun to listen to. Before we get into that, I wanted to do a few different things. Like first, as we get back in our cars a lot, because, you know, we're going back to work, 
kids are getting back into all the things that they used to be in. I don't know about you, but my kids are like spring sports are all over the place and they want to do everything because they've missed stuff for two years. Um, we're, so we're in like two different sports and dance. You know, we have piano and guitar and we're no longer online for a lot of things. We're in person. And of course they have their Spanish classes and all that. So I'm in the car a lot more and it's fine except that I also sit a lot for writing and all the other things that I do during the week, you know, the marketing and the blog writing and the newsletter and all that. It's a lot of sitting. And so a few weeks ago when I was stretching and my body just said, no, (laughs) no, 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 something's wrong. We're not doing this. I literally was in so much pain in my sort of lower back, left hip area that I was you know, on the floor. Of course it was a weekend. So, um, I couldn't get in to see anybody until the next week. And thankfully the physical therapist, you know, chiropractor said that it was just muscular, you know, it was just going to need some time and some, some exercises. There were a couple, uh, small muscles that I had left underdeveloped and some big muscles overdeveloped. And, you know, this all depends on the different sports that we do. I'm pretty active. I like exercise. But of course, if I, you know, leave some small muscles underdeveloped, then it's going to catch up with me. And that doesn't help that I had very large babies <laughs> as well, like, like nine pounds. So, you know, everything contributes plus the age. When you hit 40, it's like your body goes, no, we, you're definitely not going to do what you used to do at 20. So if you're 20 now and you're rolling your eyes, let me just forewarn you, whatever you do now will come back to bite you in the literal back. (laughs) So I am now standing a lot more, but because I'm standing, I found these really cool. Let me see what I can, what they're called. They're called OFOs. I think UFOs that it looks like O-O-F-O-S. They're like recovery, um, flip-flops. So for runners who must run a lot and they need to recover, they have, so they're like flip-flops. They're kind of plasticky, like a soft plasticky and they have an arch support and it definitely helps with the standing because standing flat-footed for like an hour while you ride is also not fun. So I have this weird makeshift standing desk area now, and I'm actually standing as I record this and, you know, just going back and forth between sitting and standing and stretching and doing the PT. Yes, that's just my PSA on Hey Rider, take care of yourself. It is raining here, but as we hopefully move into spring at some point, and definitely we'll move into summer at some point, just remember to take some walks. It's good for your creativity to sort of disconnect from the screen. It's good to even go in silence, you know, so you can sort of file away all the things that you're doing or you've learned during research and just be in whatever nature you have near your house. (laughs) That that varies depending on where you live. Get some vitamin D, get some fresh air, um, and then, you know, get back, but definitely move around a little bit. You know, we just sit a lot as, as a society and it's, it's going to probably bite us. Yeah. It's probably going to come back and, and hurt us. So I'm actually in pain, but if you're not in pain, still take care of yourself. Maybe a nice bath, maybe some, some walks, maybe some Pilates or yoga. Anyway. Okay. I'll stop being a mom now. (laughs) 
as far as writing goes, it had, you know, the pain hasn't kept me too much from writing. Um, the nice thing was when the pain was pretty bad, my husband took care of all the house stuff, which actually freed me up to write, <laughs> you know, when, when you don't have to worry about cooking or cleaning the house or whatever. It's just like, just, you know, try to relax and be comfortable. And so I actually ended up writing quite a bit and I'm having a good time writing between Tread, whatever his name will end up being, and Dowser. And it's funny, that's that's what I call my books while I write them. I, they don't have titles. I talked to somebody lately who said that they don't start writing until they have a title for the book. And that really caught my attention because I thought, I I don't think I could do that because I don't ever come up with a title until sometimes the end. I think Coffee Stains was like the anomaly. I, I had that title pretty quickly. But yeah, otherwise, otherwise I, I never have a title. <laughs> um, sometimes it's like different things in, in my computer. Sometimes it's things I shouldn't say out loud. So <laughs> like depending on my frustration level. So yeah, Tread and Dowser are um, getting written. My main character for Dowser, which is a historical fiction romance. My female character's name is Carmen. And she's actually living in Spain. So she's from Spain. And I made her from the area, Castilla Leon, where my husband is from. And so that's been really fun to sort of read about that area in the 1930s, read about wine in the 1930s, having to adjust a little bit the dates, <laughs> which is kind of a bummer. But, you know, that's, it's not any like hardcore history book, you know, it's historical fiction. And so I'm trying to stick as much as I can to it. But it's interesting because Spanish wine is a very robust, very full-bodied wine. Uh, we enjoy it very much. And there are two kinds, Rioja and Rivera. And those are kind of the most famous. It's not just two kinds, but those are kind of the most famous red wines, right? If anyone's Spanish out there, they're probably rolling their eyes. There's like a million wines from Spain. Yes. But from my husband's region, the red wines are Rioja and Rivera. And that's pretty much what you'll find. In America, I'm, sure, I'm I'm just digging myself a hole, aren't I, in case anyone's from Spain or if my husband actually listens to this. So anyway, I was listening, uh, I was looking into the history of these wines and it's interesting because they, they kind of stumbled across storing them in these oak barrels by accident because somebody wanted to export them to America. So he, as the winemaker, put them into these oak barrels that he got from Bordeaux. And when it arrived in America, what the people wrote back about what it tasted like really interested him. They, oh, it was a very full body wine. It was a really wonderful wine and everyone liked it so much. So that sort of started this revolution of how they stored the wine and how they, you know, sort of cured it. And it became this very full, robust wine. It, it sort of got their signature that way. And unfortunately, in Spain, a sort of fungus came and, you know, devastated the crops for years. And so Rioja, it looks like, according to my research, didn't really come into prominence again until the 1970s. So anyway, if you are a wine drinker, I suggest you find a good Good Rioja, Rivera. Uh, Rivera is actually the one that um, is closest to my husband's region. Um, so she is Carmen. My character lives in Zamora, which is a very cute town. I'm excited to 
go back there. I am revamping my Pinterest and I will be having pictures there as well of the region. And I don't know, it's just exciting to, to add Spain, my second home to my books. I'm, I'm excited to do that. And I hope that it will happen sometime again in the future. So I mentioned Pinterest in the creative writing community. We are really focusing this month on social media, using it for marketing, using it for branding, using it for our books. And we are diving into Pinterest because a lot of us find Pinterest a bit elusive, I think. Um, We're revamping that. If you don't know, we do marketing sprints and brainstorming every Friday. So today is Friday as I record this, and we are going to delve into Pinterest, you know, sort of organize our boards, take some out that don't need to be there, brainstorm with each other what kind of boards we should have. And that's that's a small part of what we do in the creative writing community. We're also going to have our very own Ashley Kay, who's a romance author, but she's also a social media and branding expert. She um, That's what she, her daytime job is. And so she's going to come in and do a workshop with us on our social media, all the new things that are happening there, what what she's seeing working with some multi-million dollar figure in sales, at least people in a different industry, but, you know, seeing what they're doing there and being able to apply it to us as as authors. And we're definitely not multi-million dollar sales. That'd be great. But, you know... It's social media and we can figure out what other people are doing and see if we want to do it and apply it and see what happens. So we are focusing on that in May. In June, we're going back to the basics of newsletters and book blurbs because we always need to go back to those. So Nick Thacker is going to come in and then to talk to us about newsletters. And then Madison Michael is going to do a book blurb workshop. So that's for the next two months. We actually have the next six months all the way set up. If you want to know more, um, you should go over to catcaldwell.com and click on the creative writing community. You can also click on a link in the show notes to get more information about it. Um, it, If you're looking for a writing community, we co-write together. That doesn't mean that we write books together. It means we come on Zoom and we write together. Um, it's, It's a great way to be accountable to writing daily. A couple people have finished their books already. I think we have uh, five books already finished this year and a couple more coming. And I have to tell you, I would not be this far in my book writing, especially because I started over <laughs> in February or something. Like, right? Yeah, right after London, I started over. So I would not be this far if I didn't have these co-writing sprints. I, I run some of them. Uh, a couple of the people run some of them. I'm usually at almost every single one of them and we just write, take the time to write. So we are all, we also do like an accountability at the very beginning of the week. We have experts come in. As I said, we have workshops, we have a private Slack. We do not use Facebook. We use a private Slack channel to connect and to ask questions and to encourage and to be there for each other and to talk about our writing and our reading and all of that. So if you're interested in a community in which it's a little more smaller than Twitter or Facebook and a little more intimate and ready to get some writing done, you should go over to catcaldwell.com and check out more all about that or go to the show notes and click on the link. 
So now I am not going to take up any more of your time. I am going to let you hear my interview with Andy Cumbo Floyd. If you want to know more about Andy, listen to the intro and check out the show notes. Andy Cumbo Floyd is a nonfiction writer and writes fiction as ACF bookends, cozy mysteries. She is a former editor and now spends her time running after a little boy, writing her books, and coaching creatives on their business. You can find Andy Combo at Andy Lit, that's A-N-D-I-L-I-T dot com. You can talk with her on Twitter at A-N-D-I-L-I-T as well. You can find her mystery at acfbookends.com. Hello, everybody. Today I have with me on the Pencils and Lipstick podcast, Andy Combo Floyd. <laughs> you can tell that I almost got it wrong. That's right. We'll call you Andy. Hi, Andy. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And you got it exactly right. So way to go. Well, your little, your little uh, advice to me in the beginning helped. <laughs> you know, my, he- my husband's Spanish, so I always, for some reason, want to elongate vowels. And I'm, I'm, you know, I grew up speaking English, so I don't know why, but my brain goes crosswired. <laughs> <laughs> so could you tell us a little bit about where, um, where you are at? I don't know if you're from the same place that you're at, but tell us a little yeah. bit about yourself. I live just north of Charlottesville, Virginia. So in a little, I live on two acres surrounded by uh, railroad tracks and a stream. So I have no neighbors, which is ideal. Nice. I love it. I love seeing nature outside. Um, and I'm from near here, just the other side of Charlottesville. Okay. But I grew up kind of all over and I've lived all over San Francisco, England, Ohio, all over the US and then a little in Europe. So, but I came back here 10 years ago and I'm content to be here. I love it. Yeah. So is it ideal to have a farm as a writer? That sounds like a lot of work. (laughs) I think it depends on what kind of schedule, how well, how disciplined you are and Mm. kind of schedule you like, like, so I like to be at home. And so I don't mind like I, right now I don't have farm animals, but I have had chickens. So I don't mind like the schedule of having to get up at a certain time to take care of them and take care of them every night. It's also great right. if you're introverted like me and need to get out of a social gathering. You know, you can say, I got to get home to the chickens. I got to go see the chickens. <laughs> <laughs> so I can get out. But if you're somebody who likes to travel a lot, you know, or if your writing is influenced by travel, it's really, tri- it's tricky to have a lot of animals. I mean, I right now just have mm. dogs. And even that means like yesterday I was gone on a research trip and I had to have my dad come and take care of the dogs for the day. So yeah, you know, they got to eat, right? Right. And, and please, we don't want them in the house all day for their bathroom needs. It's just too much. So no, yeah. But it must be nice to sort of have your land to go out and walk and sort of step out into nature, right? That that might be ideal for a writer. It's for, it is for me to not feel that presence, the energy of other people gives me a lot more space creatively to kind of really engage mm-hmm. with my characters and be in that space. And yeah, people are always like, let's go for a hike. I'm like, what if we just go out my back door and take a walk? Like we don't have to... <laughs> drive somewhere to do something we can just be at my house and I really like that because it does make me connected 
to the yeah. next Lame without feeling like it has to be an expedition to get to it. So, yeah, I think the the sad thing about America, as we were talking about before, like the the big cities are eating everything up. So when you want to go do something, you drive to get there. Yeah. Like it's it just seems like counterintuitive. And then as a writer, especially if you have other maybe kids or another job, you're like, I don't have three hours to hike for one, <laughs> you know, like to get all the way out there. That's right. That's right. I mean, and it, I mean, and we, I live close to the Blue Ridge Parkway and the Shenandoah National Parks, but I oh, still beautiful. don't go. I mean, it's only 25 minutes from here, but that's still an yeah. hour that I'd be giving to just yeah. getting back and forth. Whereas I can put on shoes and go outside. And I like that a lot. <laughs> I I like that a lot too. That sounds wonderful. And most writing retreats are actually out in the country, right? <laughs> that's right. Because that's, that's exactly. what most of us need. Well, how did you get in into writing? Is this uh what is your story on writing? Yeah, I think I've always kind of been a writer. I'm a definite reader. And seriously, if someone mm-hmm. could just pay me for the rest of my life to read books, I probably would even give up writing and just do that forever. But so far, no one has offered to be a patron of my reading habit. So I went to school for English thought and history and thought I would end mm-hmm. up teaching. And I did. I did okay. teach English for a while. But about the time it, it came around for me to decide if I was going to go on for a PhD, so I have a master's in literature, a teacher named Ted okay. Block said to me, do you really want to spend five years studying some obscure element of English literature? Or do you are you a writer? Because I feel like maybe you're a writer. Maybe you should get an MFA instead. Oh. And I was like, Two years sounds a lot better. And I think I am more naturally inclined to the kind of analysis that comes with the writing life more than I am like a literature. Okay. So I understand the world in stories, but I'm not as interested in doing things like pulling apart the symbols in a book or studying how the point of view okay. affects things, except for how it helps the story get told. So then I did. I okay. went on an MFA in creative nonfiction, actually. Okay. And then I taught. I actually taught all the things most English teachers teach composition. And and then I ended up teaching a little bit of creative writing. And then my mom got sick and I needed to step out of teaching for a while. I came and lived with my dad here in Virginia while she was sick and then stayed on with him to kind of help both of us transition after that. And he said, what do you need to do to teach at a four-year school? I was teaching community college and I said, I need to have a book out. My dad said, okay, I'll pay your bills for a whole year. You can live with me. And you can write your book. And so I did. Wow. And then I was like, I'm never going back. Like, (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) Thank you for that, dad. And I'm not going to use that gift for the way you gave it to me. And then I just ended up saying I did editing for a number, about a decade. Okay. While I built my writing business. And now I primarily make my living selling books, which is pretty great. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I honestly think is the dream. Like, because then you can read and then you can write and you can sell your books. <laughs> right. It's exactly, it's, it's a perfect life. And I have a little boy. So this life gives me a lot of time to be with him and a lot of flexibility. About yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. So as, as far as editing goes, do you, do you think it's helpful to have like, I mean, I know not, not everyone has the time or maybe even the interest to do college style, you know, but I've been sort of talking to different writers and thinking on my own, you know, I'll say talking to the voices in my head more than anything, like editing, you know, getting that experience, I guess. Do you think it helps writers to get any sort of editing experience, maybe not professionally, but 
just do editors see things in a different way than maybe writers do who haven't edited? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think there's, there's two, there's, there's a, there's one danger, I guess. And that is a okay. person who's inclined towards perfectionism in, in this mm-hmm. way, which I am not, there are levels at which I'm a perfectionist, but this is not, it can be, editing can be really infuriating because it's not okay. something that you ever, you know, book is never perfect. It might be right. radically perfect or have no typos, but the content is, there's just, there is no measure for perfect in a book. So that can True. be really trying for some people. But if you're somebody who takes pleasure in understanding how a story is put together and what makes it mm. more effective, if you're somebody who loves to read and can understand why you like what you like when you read it or what you don't like, editing can be great for giving you the language for how to talk about that. You know, so yes. when I'm teaching writers how to give feedback on writing, sometimes I'll say like, you know, it's it's very reasonable to just say I'm confused here or I'm bored. Right. Um, but it, as an okay. editor, you have to cut, you have to figure out why you're confused or why you're bored. And then that's invaluable True. as a writer. So I have pretty much now an, an innate sense of pace, like for different okay. genres because I've read so many and, and studied for what's working or not working. So I don't really have to think actively about my pacing in my books anymore. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I still have to think about things like characterization and dialogue just sure. makes me crazy. And no one likes writing in the middle of a book. And that doesn't matter if you've had No, <laughs> I know. What is with that? <laughs> like, I just need them to get to this point. That's right. Can we just skip this 10 years later? And then we're there. Yeah. But, but if you like, if it helps you to sit in that analytical space, I think editing can be mm-hmm. really powerful because it does, it just does train you to see what works and what doesn't and then how to fix it. You know, because you, ha- you can't just uh, tell somebody this doesn't work. You have to kind of, hopefully make some suggestions about how they might make it better. Yeah. There's nothing worse than having an editor. And I've had a couple different ones. They're like, nah, I don't know about this part. And you're like, what about that? <laughs> like, cut it. Like redo it. Like what? Right. And I think one of the dangers these days with indie publishing is you also kind of have indie editors. Like, so people who might not have been trained properly, but maybe they, you can afford them. And they might be able to do the grammar, but they might not be able to do what you said and pacing. And I can deal with typos, but you know, as a reader, like you said, even if you can't articulate it, if something's off in the story, and that's when you stop reading. Right. Honestly, that's when you get, you realize you're reading a story and then nobody wants to realize that they want to stay in that story. Right. You know, that's the hardest part. And that's the thing about good editors. And we could have a whole conversation about what qualifies as good editors and why we have to pay more for good editors. Good editors can tell you when that's happening and why. And most of the time, in my experience, it's not, it's not because the book needs a total rewrite. I mean, I've probably told in my entire decade of editing five people that their book needed like a total overhaul. And sometimes it's because they had things like 12 points of view. You're like, no, no one can keep up with that. You know? It's just like some fundamental writing things they hadn't learned. Yeah. Most of the time, it's like, yeah. uh, in here, you're giving too much description. It's slowing the pace down at a time when yeah. you need to pick it up. Or here, the yeah. pace is too slow because there's no dialogue. Can you insert some dialogue? Or my favorite, do these people move when they talk to each other or are they just sitting <laughs> still? 
because they are, they do. Wait, how did they get from the kitchen to the bedroom? Right. <laughs> so from here, are we all just no arm? They, these people have no appendages and they just sit stock still. Like, so that kind of stuff. But that stuff, once you start seeing it in somebody else's writing, you see it really easily in your own too. Interesting. Okay. So you don't do editing anymore, but um, how did you transition, I guess, then from editing to coaching? It sounds pretty related, but. It's very related. So I now I coach writers mostly on the business side of things. Okay. Because I want to save. It takes different but similar energy to edit than it does to write. And I really want to okay. save that energy for my writing. I do yeah. have this little boy and he, you know, he's three. He doesn't, you know, take care of himself. Ooh, yeah. no. um, he needs to be fed so and like put to bed. And- <laughs> right. Exactly. He, I wish he would just, he thinks he can do everything himself, but not quite yet. So I have to, to be, I have to marshal my energy well for my creativity. Yes. And so yes. I do coaching mostly for business now as sort of a natural progression from the editing stuff Mm -hmm. I would you know I would edit someone's book and then our follow-up conversation would often be well now what do I do with it how do I publish it okay how do I market it and you know and if somebody's trying to indie publish there's like five million questions that go with you know how do I find the cover designer how do I find a blog how do I you know so it's just kind of was a natural progression and um so that's what I do now is mostly work with women and non-binary writers and help them figure out how they're going to grow their business. So it could be because okay. writing books and they want to know how to sell more books. It could be because they are editing and they want to know how to get clients or okay, they're making the same mistakes I made. They don't have contracts. They undercharge, they overbook. They, they can't anticipate how much time something's going to take. So I yeah. offer all kinds of just coaching cohorts where they can meet with other writers, but then also meet with me. And we talk through the specifics of their goals and how they get there. And I can give them all the practical advice with the kind of support and accountability that comes with the coach. Well, there are okay. great courses for a lot of this out there, but sometimes they're kind of impersonal and it's nice. to have Yes. Sometimes. It is nice. I mean, it's like, it's like anything you can find a book, you can find the Google rabbit hole. You can find a lot of stuff. The information's out there, but honestly, you can either waste your time on, I mean, not waste, but you know, that takes a lot of time. (laughs) Or you can find a group of people who are willing to really help you out and answer questions. Yeah. That would be great to ask a question and be answered, you know, not five days later by somebody. (laughs) Right. And not in a general, well, if you're going to do this, like, you know, I know my client only takes six clients at a time. And so I know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Say like, I just had a client launch her first book on Tuesday and, um, Ooh, fun. you know, and she had a particular issue with ISBNs. I mean, that's like a very specific and it's not a hard thing to answer, but you're probably not going to be able to Google that. And if you try to ask Valker, yes. they're going to be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yes. I won't get into it, but I'm, I'm in a fight with some of people where they just fundamentally don't understand the issue. <laughs> like my book is in limbo because you can't understand something that I can't fix because it's your system. Right. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> and I mean, and it's just helpful then if there's no way to fix it to have somebody say, oh yes, they do that to everybody. I'm so sorry. Hold tight. Keep asking, you know, and, and it helps right. it resolve itself. But if you don't have those people, it can feel like, like I just got a response from someone that said I needed to prove my copyright. 
I was like, I don't file formal copyrights. I just never have because I don't really know. Nobody ever does. No. (laughs) And I was like, I don't know how to prove this to you. Like, unfortunately, I have writer friends and was able to, and they were just like, send them a draft, send them an email conversation with your, uh, it was an audiobook, audiobook producer. And I mean, and it was fine. It was resolved in like 10 minutes. But if I didn't know who to ask that question, I would have been like, I don't know what to do. What do I do now? So. They're going to say I didn't write this. I, you know what? A long that that makes me remember a long time ago before indie publishing was even accepted. I think in like 2000, I was told by somebody to mail myself a copy of my draft because this the stamp from the official post office, if ever I needed it, would hold up in court. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and I, 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 it probably would. I mean, all I did was send them up like a, the vellum file. I used vellum to format and say, right. look, I, I couldn't have put this into like, vellum if I didn't have the original file. So and <laughs> you want all my original files? Yeah, I'm <laughs> back here. Versions. There's 12 of them. Would you like all 12 of them? Or how about the three yes. others I've tried? You want to try those two? Like, so. Yeah. Deleted scenes, maybe. Right, exactly. <laughs> I got this. How about all my character stuff? I can send you a lot if you. <laughs> so yes, if you really wanted it in my journal, going, why the heck can't I get this book right? <laughs> That's right, exactly. So, did you start out in indie publishing? Was that book, that first book that your dad pushed you into writing, was that indie published? Yeah, it's a nonfiction, creative nonfiction, and so it's this sort of genre bendy history and all the slaves have names and creative non like essay and so okay I had a lot of interest I tried traditional publishing first and agents were like this is really interesting I don't know how to sell it oh this is really interesting I don't know who would buy it this is really you know there was a lot of that and I was I'm just impatient and I was like and this was 2013 and I was like no I'm done I'm just gonna figure out how to do this myself and so yeah I fortunately had a friend named Sean Smucker who had self-published and so he was willing to kind of help me walk through the process and I had uh the man I was married to at the time did the cover he was great it was a good effort it was a terrible cover I've since recovered them that looks much better now but I just I just wanted to put it out there and since then I have traditionally published I I co-wrote a book with two men that got traditionally published by a press called Herald Press and it's great but like as I said yeah somebody the other day I I got my royalty statement for last year and I made more, I had yeah. made more that morning that I got the check than I made the entire last year. <laughs> yeah. publishing. So I was like, well, I don't think we're going back that route. And, and I think it's great. <laughs> I go that route. That's lovely. I mean, that's awesome. There's all kinds of reasons. That's a valid, wonderful route. But for me who has groceries she needs to buy, it's just not the route I'm going to go anymore. Right. Right. So I've, I've heard that quite a few times. I gave up on traditionally published and again, like anyone can do whatever they want. And when a publisher loves your book and they're willing to push it out there, you can, I mean, obviously you can make quite a bit of money with all the, you know, most well-known names are traditionally published. So. Right. That's right. But I, I am also impatient. I was like, <laughs> what are you going to do? And you know what? In 2013, there was not as many cover book software things that you could probably make a really great cover with without spending hundreds of dollars. No, I mean, and, and he did a great job on, I think he did it in PowerPoint, like just, Oh wow. <laughs> you know, what can, like what Canva and Bookbrush do now, like doing that. And it looked great, except we just didn't have the JPEG quality and stuff. You know, it's kind of a cool vintage looking cover now. And for the time it sold fine. 
because it was 2013. Yeah. Like people want to. Nobody cared. Right. But now yeah, it needed a new cover. <laughs> so. Yeah. Isn't it funny how the, the, the trends, you know, it's that one person or those two people had had to make these beautiful covers that were just like, you know, some Adobe made covers and they ruined it for all the rest. <laughs> Somebody knows how to use InDesign. It's not fair. <laughs> yeah. I tried that program. Huh? No, no, not for me. I just, not for me at all. Right at this point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when w- did you continue in nonfiction writing for a while? I did. At I that wrote, point. In tw- okay. Yeah. I wrote, I never actually thought I would write fiction. Like my brain is very, I, you know, I have this degree in history. I am very interested in what's happening in the actual world, but I just never thought Mm -hmm. I'd do it. So I wrote, I have five, six, seven. So five writing books out that are sort of essays about writing. And then this, this traditionally published book. And then this first book that I did, and I love them all. It's just harder for me to sell. So now that I write Mm. and I can just, I've got the handle on the marketing of that down a little bit better than I do the nonfiction marketing. Maybe I'll get there and get that dialed in too. But, um, but I love those books. Like they're really fun. And one of them is two of them are called love letters to writers, which are uh, books I wrote to a writing community. I coordinated for a few years and each week I would write them a letter. And sometimes it was uh, spawned by something they said, you know, question they had about the writing life. Like, does every writer get up at 5 a.m. to write? And I was like, ah, no. <laughs> no, we don't all do that. Um, or yeah, we do not. <laughs> no, I mean, there are people that do. I do not do that. And then, uh, or something like, what's the difference between traditional publishing and indie publishing? Why would you pick one mm-hmm. or the other? Or just very personal things like, what do you do when you're really discouraged? Or you feel like you can't, this isn't going to ever be something you can do long-term. Or what if you just want to do it for a hobby? What does that mean? You know? So I tried to yeah. answer in really personal letters. And that's what those two books are. So it's a letter a week. Oh, that sounds really cool. Yeah, they're fun. I really appreciated them. And that time in, in learning how to articulate what I had learned about writing really helps me as a writer, but also as a coach. So they're valuable. Okay. Yeah. So you wrote those before you were coaching? I did. I did. I guess you were editing, which is kind of like coaching. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So they were, they've been out a while now. and. They're pretty fun. I like them. <laughs> I think it's interesting that a lot of writers, I mean, it's like anything in this modern age. When you when we see, you know, YouTubers make millions and some indie authors make millions and we get like an influx, which is great. Like, I think everyone should write. If you have, you know, a story within you, you should write it. We just shouldn't be deceived by the kind of work it might take <laughs> to get where you think you might, you know, you, you think you should be yes. maybe. And, and, and it, it surprises me how very few nonfiction books writers read about the craft or about, or, or just giving any space to that, you know, to read about writing or writers. Yeah, I totally agree. I find it's either they don't read any or they never write because they only read writing books. Like, right. Like, so there's a sense of always <laughs> and then never quite getting there, which I relate to in many ways. Um, but yeah, it is, it's a job, right? Like you can do it as a hobby. My stepmom is a great mm-hmm. hobby writer. She loves it. She just enjoys doing it. And that's great. She writes when she wants. She writes what she wants. She has no expectation of, you know, making a living or having a contract or winning an award or any of those things. 
great. Mm-hmm. But if you want this to be some sort of business for you, it, you have to think yeah. it like a business, which means you have to, you have to learn, you have to read craft book. Yeah. You have to study and you have to practice that stuff. Like, and you do have to kind of operate out of two minds. It's a very different mindset right now. I'm just in a phase where I love the marketing part. And I'm like, Oh, please, why do I have to mm. do my work? But I have to do my work. Like, I have yes. books on deadline and I have to get them out. And like, I just had, had to delay a pre-order and I got an email. I am not a happy camper. I have to wait seven more days, which is like really gratifying to me, but also that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> that, yes, <I'm> <laughs> it is. It's like somebody's waiting for it. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I think you're the first uh, writer I've heard say you like the marketing part. <laughs> I know. I know. The only other person I know is Kirsten Oliphant who writes as Emma St. Clair. She loves it too. Yes. Yeah, I I do. I enjoy, it's because I think of marketing as a chance to connect to readers. Like, Mm. and so I get to talk to people and because I work from home and live on this little isolated piece of wonder, I don't talk to people a lot. So it's really wonderful to get out there and, and meet readers and gosh, there's nothing more gratifying than I mean, I had a man, I write cozy mysteries for the most part. Now I had a man write me and tell me he liked my books. I was like, I have arrived. There is a dude out there that likes my books. This is amazing. So, but I do enjoy the marketing and partially I enjoy it because it's so different than the creative part. Like there are parameters and there are things I can work within when, when I write a book, it's just all out of my head, you know? So yes, but I am a rare. Okay. So I, (laughs) I have two different lanes I want to go in, but let's, let's stick for marketing for a minute. You have an MFA, you studied history, you studied English. So you didn't study marketing. So where did this, where did this come from? Did did this just surprise you that you like marketing and that you wanted to learn more about it? Or did you, did it come from somewhere else? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think it's two things. One is I was a professional fundraiser before I was a professor. Oh, that helps. And so I'm pretty That's hard. Hard. <laughs> and it's but I was good at it. And it's because I only Okay. I only was a fundraiser for nonprofits. So there were organizations I believed in. They were things that right. I was really invested in. And so I learned okay, how to sell, I guess, a little bit that way. Um and I also just learned to treat adults like adults and and they can say no if they don't want something or don't want to do something. So I can not feel guilty about putting my book on Facebook a bunch or Twitter a bunch because nobody has to pay attention to me if they don't want to. Like, kind of got my mm. ego out of that. So that's one thing. Yeah. I think the other part is that because I got into self-publishing kind of early, I mean, not as early as some people, but pretty early, I got to right. come up while people like Mark Dawson and Joanna Penn and Nick Stevenson were, were starting. And so I was able to kind of learn from them. Like they're always ahead of me, but they're not 20,000 years ahead of me. They're like a year ahead of me. And so I can kind of just follow along. And because I, it was a smaller world then I was an affiliate for all of them. So I got to take all their classes for free and sell their stuff. Yeah. So I took, I've taken every class there is like that I could learn. And, and I'm pretty selective now about who I, who I recommend and who I, who I, under right. for learning, but I just learned a lot from them. And now I'm at a place because I feel very fortunate that I can hire people to help me with stuff. So now I use something to mm-hmm. do my Facebook ads for me. 
because again, it takes energy for me to do that. I don't, I know how to do Facebook ads, but I don't know the nuances of them. And that's a lot of time and energy it would take for me to learn it. So I just got a recommendation and hired a really good company and, and they're doing great for me. So I've also learned that too. I think that I just, I hire yeah. out for what I can't learn myself. Yeah. Yeah. Would you recommend that people learn that part, especially in the beginning? Like, I'm not sure, probably in the beginning when you're not really selling books, you do have to learn something. Yeah. I think like, I'm pretty big on learning all the fundamentals about things like okay, partially because yeah, you can't afford it at the beginning. Like, I mean, there are things that I, that I usually recommend people do. Like if you can afford to hire a cover designer, unless you are a graphic designer, I usually recommend people do it, but you can get a pre-made cover for a pretty reasonable price yeah. and do it. Or if you have some graphic design skills, knock yourself out in Canva, make yourself a cover. Yeah. And I usually say people you can always change it. That's right. <laughs> and people should get an editor, like just because we can't, it's very hard to edit yes. and work well. But, but beyond yes. that, like that's, that's already a financial investment. So a lot of people need to learn how to do stuff. So having the sort of fundamentals of how to run Facebook ads, Amazon ads, if you want to, I love book ads, how to do book ads, if you're going to do those, how mm-hmm. to, how to set up a newsletter list, like what kinds of things you want to mm-hmm. talk about in your newsletter, that kind of just sort of nitty gritty basic stuff, I think can be really helpful. Like I just, like I said, I just put up an audiobook this week and I, the producer I used said she would put it up for me. And I was like, actually, let me do this one because I just want to know how to do it so that right. I understand. And and I'll certainly let you know if I have any trouble. And it turned out to be not hard at all. But now I understand how their process works. And so I can replicate that if I need to. Like if I need to not hire people, I'll be able to still do all of this stuff for myself. Yeah, that also makes me think I I interviewed Victoria Strauss from Writer Beware. And if you know the fundamentals, you're less likely to be scammed or overpay for things. So I I think that's pretty good advice. We can't write eight hours a day. You do have to like learn the fundamentals of a business. And this this is a business, right? If you're especially if you're an indie author, it's your product and you got to sell it. Yeah. And you need to know like some basic financials. I mean, I'm terrible with numbers. Like I'm a word girl all the way, but I know what an ROI is and I know, I know how much I spend on a book and I know how much I have to make back to like make my investment back. So like understanding those kind of just baseline numbers is really important. And like, yeah, it is really important to not get scammed. Like, you know, you have to learn who, what kind of promises are reasonable for some, someone or something to make. And what's it reasonable to pay for and what it's not, you know, and that's hard. Now, yeah. Some of that's just trial and error. I don't know anybody that hasn't laid out some cash for something that they wish they had. For sure. <laughs> Let's not talk about that. <laughs> you know, I always give the excuse of like, yeah, but if I hadn't done that, then I wouldn't know this. <laughs> it's like a stepping stone and a very expensive. That's right. Exactly. So as you're coaching writers, are they mostly indie writers? For the most part. Is there anything yeah. for the yeah. most part? Or, I mean, even traditionally published these days probably have to do a lot themselves. I mean, you're still getting royalty checks, right? You're still wanting to tell people about your book. You still want to sell it. So is there anything that you see like mindset wise or just maybe, maybe not mistakes, but things that writers do or don't do that sort of always seems to come up? 
Yeah, I mean, that's not good for their business. I would say. I think that mindset piece about you have to think of this as a business is sort of it's just a fundamental like, and it and again it can be whatever level of business you want it to be. Like, I want to make my living selling books, so that means there's a certain investment of time and resources I have to put in to do that. But if you're somebody that basically wants to make back what you spend on your book, great. Like, and if anything more than that comes in, you're like, great, I can pay ahead for my kid's college fund, whatever you want to do with it. But you need to kind of know how mm-hmm. to measure success for yourself as a business person, um, if you're thinking of this okay. as a business at all. And then I think the other thing is really recognizing that, that uh, Tim Grawl says this, and it, this was really life-changing for me. Your gift is a, is your book is a gift you're giving people. It's not that they're mm. doing you a favor to buy it. You are giving them something. Oh. And if you can get your mindset set to that, then then you can sell because you believe in what you've done. Okay. As opposed to feeling like you're bothering everybody every time you ask somebody to buy your book. That that's that, yeah. Yeah. I do like that. It, and it's weird how how authors think they're bothering people all the time. It's a weird mindset that we have. Yeah. It's like, I think of it as like, I get junk mail, right? I mean, do people anywhere in the world Mm -hmm. not get junk mail? Is it annoying sometimes? Sure. Do I need 500 pizza coupons? Probably not. But is it a hardship on me to put them in the recycling? It is not. And I think of that the same way as marketing for anything. Mm. Somebody can just Scan right by if they're not interested. They don't have to devote, you know, a ton of time to to telling me they don't want to see my ads. Although it seems we do that sometimes on Facebook, but why? I don't know. But that's their issue, not mine. And so I'm writing stories that I believe in and I think are good and they're gifts. And so if yeah. you want them, buy them. And if you don't, it really doesn't bother me. That's not about me. I like this. I like this. I I do think that that is probably the biggest mindset that authors have to, especially indie authors of if you don't have to buy my book (laughs) and you don't, you don't have to even finish it if you pick it up and it's not for you. Um, Just please don't disparage me on Twitter. (laughs) That's that's what I would Please don't do that. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe akin to that is, I think a lot of people expect their friends and family to buy their books or to be, and I mean, great. If my dad buys my books, that's wonderful. But that's not my dad's job. It's not my best friend's job to mm-hmm. be my reader. Their job is to be my friend or True. my dad or whatever. So to let go of that, of valuing their purchase as 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 telling you something about your value as a writer, because it's not. It's just telling you they're not spending their money on your books, but they still love you. You know, and if they don't love you, they don't need to yes. be in your life anyway. Like <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> well, you also can't make a living off of just your friends and family. And honestly, in my writing group, I tell everyone like, don't expect them to buy it. I know my family loves me, but they haven't bought or read my book. <laughs> my husband still like is reading the first one. At least he's trying, right? Like there you are. Yeah, he's trying. <laughs> He's just not a, a fiction reader. And so he's, you know, making quite the effort for me, which shows <laughs> three years later. <laughs> Sorry. He also doesn't listen to the podcast, so I can That's say whatever. I want. 
I was, so let's go back a little bit to get, cause you said something about pacing. Um, and as writers, and I've been talking quite a bit on, on the podcast and then to my, to my writing group, like there is something to learn about writing. And I have to say, like, when I first started writing, I just had stories to tell and I just wanted to tell stories. And I, I didn't actually really get into really studying storytelling until probably a year ago or so. I've really like story, like what makes the difference between a story and like kind of a funny anecdote, you know, like what is the, what is the difference? And like, where is, what is this arc thing? You know, cause you have a sense, like you said, but you can't always articulate it. And I think articulating it is actually pretty important to writers because when you get stuck in the middle, you can then know why you're stuck in the middle. Um, so do you see this as a sort of an issue with authors? Did you ever struggle with this at all? Or like, did you see it when, in your editing days? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and sometimes it's really fundamental. It's like, Mm. People don't realize that stories need to have beginnings, middles, and ends. You know, like, so their stories will, they, I, I find a lot of new writers want that ending to be a cliffhanger or to be like some oh. twist. And I'm like, but that's not actually what an ending does. An ending actually holds things together and brings them together. It doesn't have to tie them all up in a neat little bow but it needs to come to some level of resolution. And that sometimes is fundamentally really hard for people to get because they don't, they don't understand stories. So when they see like Dan Brown, write The Da Vinci code and every chapter ends on a kind of uptick of action, they assume that's how books work, but that's not how books work. Chapters might can, maybe can work that way. Although I feel like Dan Brown might, he might need to find another trick at some point, but he's got, you know, he's doing fine for himself. So I'm not going to really criticize him too much, but you can't end a book on that kind of uptick of action. Like it, it's unsatisfying okay. to a read, to a reader. Would you say that even for series writers? I don't, I don't really write series, but yeah, I do. I mean, I they, think is, a is it value the same? Okay. To, okay. Unless you're V.E. Schwab, who she can do whatever she wants. She can write any way she yes. wants. <laughs> There has to be some level of resolution in each episode, each book, and each series. Otherwise, readers feel okay. robbed, I feel like. It feels yeah. like that, um, anybody that was alive in the 80s and watched television, that to be continued that just came like right at the climax of the act. And of the the, I was just going to say, like at the end of the season, to make sure that you spent your summer in agony. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, duh, no. I mean, now none of nobody that is a millennial knows that because they all just watch on Netflix, right? But anybody they older, just yeah, and just knows what it was like to be like MacGyver was like hanging from a helicopter. What is gonna happen? You know, I know. Yeah. So, yeah. X Files, they get like taken up, you know, and we don't know where David is. What happened? <laughs> yeah, and I think that's really it can work to drive readers to the next book. It can also drive readers completely away. Like, whereas if you just yeah. offer a little resolution, like one plot line that mm. kind of gets wrapped can feel like, oh my gosh, okay, I still want to know what's happening to these characters in the next book, but I feel like I got, you know, these this couple got together and it's a romance and that feels great to me. Um, so I write series, like, so there's, okay. Um, my series are 
cozy mystery series that have a larger arc, usually like a romantic arc. Um, mm-hmm. but, but each murder is finished in each book. So you don't have to read them in order. You, you know, you miss a little of the larger arc, but you get the satisfaction of some sort of resolution in each one. And I really think I'm not, not because I do it, but because I think that's tried and true. People just really appreciate that. And then and the yeah. middles have to be juicy enough that people will read them and not just skip them. You can think about it like the middle book of a trilogy. Like, oh, we all love Tolkien, but seriously, the two towers, it's like, oh, if it wasn't for Frodo, we would all give up, right? Like, so <laughs> just <laughs> keeps going, right? And it's Tolkien, right? And it's epic fantasy. And there's a whole, and there are genre rules for all these things, right? But your book has to be right. worth that slog through the middle. And that slog through the middle has to be paced. So it's not so sloggy that people get their boots stuck and never can get out. And then the beginning has to be, you know, exciting enough to make people want to read, but also fill in all that backstory. And those things all change. The length of those things change. All these things change depending on your genre. So if you, I just tell people, read 40 books in the genre you want to write so that you know the rules. Like you just learn them innately and then, yeah. And then try to learn how to articulate them for yourself. Okay. And you said something about doing sort of like character studies or something in the beginning. Do you, do you plot? Do you do like, what, what is your, your sort of plan? Oh, I'm as you start? so far on the pantser side. Like I don't have pants on, like that's how far <laughs> over there I am. I don't outline, I don't plan, but I do like, because of the, um, my publication process, I have to have the back cover copy written usually months before the book is ever written. Mm-hmm. So I know the just of where I'm, you know, who died, where they died, maybe like one other plot element. So um, you write the book blurb that, before you write the book. I do. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's craziness. It's I wouldn't necessarily recommend that for other people, but it, it works for me because I am such a pantser because I don't I don't value for me outlines are very feel stifling. For mm-hmm. other people they work great and people should do what works for them. But when I when I sit down to start a new series, I, I do do a character sketch for the main character. And then usually okay. there's a couple because mysteries are a couple friends. And that is me catching, making sure I'm catching the vibe of the place I'm writing in for the most part. I'm really place oriented in my whole life. So do they, do the characters fit that place? Do they you know how old are they? What ethnicity okay. are they? What do they do for a living? You know, what kind of, trauma do they carry if they carry some trauma um who are they in relationship with you know like that kind of backstory and it's just usually notes for me and then but then I keep them so that I have that consistency throughout my series okay okay and they don't necessarily always fix like their misbeliefs or thing but that that's like happening throughout the series that's not really the plot of each book the book is them figuring out the mystery Right, murder. exactly. Like one of my then characters he- is nosy, like like super, you know, really annoyingly nosy. And as the series goes along, she's getting less nosy. Like she's starting to kind of realize, not only does that kind of get her in trouble and, and put her in danger, but it's not the greatest character trait. But that's not the biggest part of the book. The biggest part is who killed the banker. You know, so. yeah. <laughs> There's a body, and we kind of need to figure out why. Exactly. <laughs> So for your cozy mystery series, you write as ACF bookends, which again, I think is a great pen name. 
<laughs> and you can find that at um, acfbookings.com. Um, and then if anybody is interested in your coaching, which is, as you said, it's mostly for like the, the business side. So really anybody who's doing writing, editing, things like that, is there a place that they get on like a list? Do you open that up at a certain time or is that yeah. on? Yeah, it's going to open up again in May. Um, so okay. the first week of May. And yeah, they can just get in touch with me through the contact form on andylit.com, which is my nonfiction site. And then my assistant, Alyssa, and I will get back and talk about schedules and stuff. And because I only take six people, I have the ability to be really flexible about when we talk and how we talk. So and that involves talking with me every other week, talking with a group a few times, getting weekly emails from me about stuff, having access to me via email for questions right. as they come up. So it's a pretty robust connection and I love it. And like I said, my yeah. first, I want clients just had her first book out. So, and That's I've done like cool. one of the clients has, is traditionally publishing this person self-published. One is just in the process of starting to write books for the market. Let's see. Uh, the others are, one is she's, just trying to get a sense of like how to do a serial novel for fantasy. Um, yeah. She's like, I don't know if I want to do Kindle Bella. I don't know if I want to do something else. So, you know, that's one of the things I enjoy about it is I get to figure, like we looked at a lot of software. And by the way, if anybody wants to create software that'll serialize things, there's a market because it does not exist. Because it so, all sucks basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to stay away from that for a minute. Right, exactly. But that that's very cool. It's it's instead of, you know, spending a lot of time trying to figure it all out yourself, working with somebody, having some parameters, and knowing that you're not just alone in the void. That, that's that right. It's really and, nice. The program lasts for six months, so it's enough. Okay. To, on how fast you write, maybe draft something if you want to draft something, or get like sort of the infrastructure of your business set up. Um, yeah, it's pretty fun. I love it. Awesome. All right. So I will definitely have the. Links in the show notes, um, andylit.com and acfbookins.com. And then I'll have links to your social media as well. Thank you so much, Andy, for coming and talking to us today. Thank you so much for having me on, Kat. I appreciate it. You're still listening. Since you are, could you do me a favor and head over to the app that you're listening to this episode on and hit the subscribe button and then rate and review the show? It would really help the Pencils Olympic podcast get out into the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast, well, then there might be more people out there who would enjoy it as well. If you want to find out more about me, you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group. If you're looking to write a book or you are a writer and you just want to find out more about how to write, how to publish, how to format, how to market, and all the things that go into being an author these days, check out the membership group. There is a 14 free day trial that you can try it out, get into the masterminds, find out all the goodies that we are talking about in the group. I would love to see you there.